The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You are forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Brad. Well, um, some of you know I'm originally from... Texas, and um, grew up there and loved, uh, especially this time of year, the football season was a big thing for me. I grew up playing football and um, loved it and enjoyed it. Oh man, started young in pads, and I remember when I was in middle school, uh, one of my first coaches, uh, and I don't know if you've seen... um, if y'all watch ESPN 30 for 30 documentary and kind of thing, there's one called The Pony Excess. It's about SMU in Dallas uh, that when it was uh, very fascinating, even if you're not a sports fan, these are the kind of documentaries you should watch. It's actually really interesting because uh, it talks about, you know, paying players and all that stuff. And Eric Dickerson, who was one of the, the biggest, you know, NFL Hall of Fame running backs, played at SMU. Well, uh, one of those coaches... Uh, I mean, one of the players from that team was one of my coaches. He was uh, in middle school. He was like basically, gosh, I think he, he was uh, probably lost a little weight, but he was like 260 pound offensive lineman. And so here I am a 12 year old, you know, uh, boy starting out middle school football, first time on, a, on a, like a team for the thing. And I was playing uh, fullback. I was not actually fast at all. Um, I was just kind of like, you know, ready to go. It was fun, you know. And he, was, he and our other coach uh, led our little middle school team. And I remember uh, getting in the huddle, and my, the other coach calls the play, and it's to me. And I'm like, oh, sweet, okay. So I get the ball. And at the time, we were kind of like just running plays. And so this huge coach, his name was Coach Dunn, uh, was playing, he played, he, he was like, oh, I'll just be middle linebacker over here. He just slipped on one arm pad. Let's tell you the funniest. One arm pad and was like pretending to be the defense so we could pr- practice our plays, right? Well, they hand me the ball, I run through, and I get by him. And I, as I'm walking back, like, yeah, 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 I do that to him. And I get back to the huddle and the coaches saw each other. You know, they kind of saw what was going on. And I get down in the huddle like this and the the coach says, same play. And I'm like, and I know exactly what that means. So it means, hut, I get the ball, one arm pad. He doesn't hardly move. Like he maybe takes a step and just goes, 
like this. And I just, I mean, my helmet was twisted. Like it was, I mean, he weighed two six. This guy was so big. Um, it was just insane. And he used to, he, would, he could take a football and turn it and throw what was called a knuckleball with it. He was so big. I mean, that means a football not moving, flying through the air, he had to catch it. I mean, he was enormous. And you know, it's interesting when you read a passage like we just read, and you talk about how exalted and high and lofty God is, we need to be reminded who we're approaching. Uh, the, the coach wanted me to know, oh, wait, wait, do you know who's really you're approaching? And differently than Coach Dunn, God doesn't just have us approach and slam us just to remind us who's God. That's not how he works. And oftentimes I think that's what we think he does. That there are these moments where we're just humbled and we're like, oh, God is God and we really need him. That's why we cry out and pray. Actually, what this psalm is doing, it's considered an enthronement psalm meaning it's showing us how God is on the throne. And different than him showing like his might to crush us, it's actually lifting us up to see how great he is, that we don't forget and acknowledge how great is God, really. I, I remember, um, gosh, a couple of years ago, I have some friends, pastor friends I'll get together with and I was really struggling, and, and this one friend of mine, who's a pastor in Murfreesboro, he, he looked at me and he said, you know what would really help you kind of get out of that is take a look at how great God is for a moment. Just not that your troubles melt away, but for a moment, look at the character of God's kingship and be reminded again, who is he really? Like, who are we really singing to? Who are we really worshiping? I mean, is he really that great? Or have we kind of reduced him to something that we kind of fit in a good category? We need to approach him in that way. And the enthronement Psalms do that. If you notice all through the Psalm, we're going to look at it exalted, lifted up, reigns, just like the songs we sang. It is all through it, not to reduce us, but to lift our eyes up to see how great is our God, how great is our King. So as we do this, we're going to look at this psalm, and it's kind of broken up in half. It's just nine verses. We're going to look at two parts of it. We're going to ask the question as it begins in verses one through five, who is he? Who is this God? And two is how he loves us, how he loves. Who is he and how he loves? Two simple questions. You know, at the beginning of this, it says, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Psalm begins with the Lord reigns. Who reigns? God does. <laughs> That's what it does, simply. He's enthroned. It says, it means he's the one that sits on the throne. Multiple times in the psalm, it talks about him being exalted, lifted up, that he's in authority. He's the one calling the shots. I mean, even the reaction here, it says that let the peoples tremble, let the earth quake. It's, it's, it's calling creation to recognize who is the one over all things. Uh, and this is not an easy place to be. We talked about this in confession for a reason, is because when we butt up against authority, uh, we struggle with it. 
that's why authority has been pointed back to us. Look, in the 80s, I don't know if you remember all these great movies. In the 80s, remember Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller, like all these movies that came out. Uncle Buck, do you remember these movies? If you have not seen some of these movies, they are not for the faint of heart, but they are great movies for um, those of us who enjoy a good 80s. But they're all written by a guy named John Hughes and the director. And it's interesting, they all have a direct theme and line. And he talked about how he wanted to reverse the idea of authority within these films. So if you watch them, particularly just take like Ferris Bueller, if you've ever heard of this. Matthew Broderick, one of his best films. It's about a high school kid who skips school and he basically like ends up running things in downtown Chicago and is like this, you know, he's like ends up on a float and the whole, the whole movie revolves around him. And the whole point is, and you see that those who are adults or in authority put to shame. And so that's what John Hughes actually wanted to do. He also did Home Alone. If you've watched Home Alone, great Christmas movie, right? What happens? Kids left Home Alone. I'm not ruining anything for you, but he basically, right? Home Alone, I'm kind of telling you. uh, He basically puts all the adults to shame, right? Having to be an authority of his own. That was John Hughes' idea of his directorial debut. He wanted to do reversal of authority to show from the bottom going up how youth could hold their own and be in an authority. But that really is, I mean, it makes sense, right? And it kind of points back to that. One of the things that we read in this passage is, and what we feel when you can feel that is that authority swap. It's not a hard thing to move from our culture. Like to think, who's in authority? We still have this question now. It's not just didn't just come in the '80s with movies. Okay, we struggle with the, the idea of authority and who reigns and these things. In fact, our country was built on top of how do we get out from a throne, right? But the whole question here is, what do we really long for? What are we really wanting? See, why is God different in His authority than anything else? How come God is different? This is exactly actually why the Iliad and the Odyssey was written. Those famous treatises, the only other book that's paralleled in its writing, as is the Bible, as what has been passed down is the Iliad and the Odyssey. And you know what it was about? It was about the overthrowing of the lower G gods. It was essentially showing how human power could, wouldn't, couldn't be um, underestimated connected to those gods. It's been around forever. Why is God different? Why is Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth that we're reading about here, different? He's different because a lot of things. One is God doesn't tangle himself into like human pursuits. He's considered here, and this psalm is called the holy psalm. If you notice in verses 3, 5, and 9, it says, "Let uh, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Exalt the Lord, verse 9, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Four times it's said that his character is different. And holy is not a word that is a word that just describes ethical like greatness. It actually is a word that describes separation. It means when you talk about some, oh man, that's so holy. You're talking about something, not just that it's so pure, but something that's equally distant, that's other. 
Holy comes from a word sanctified, meaning that it's something so distant and different and separate because of its quality, not because of it's just so good, but because of its distance, that God is that. And it's repeated so often that it's wanting us to know his character is unlike anything else. He's not like another lower G God. He's not like the authorities that we're longing for, that we think we have the vote for or the likes for or those kind of things. His authority is of a different kind and quality. In fact, there was a German theologian named Rudolf Otto in the 19th century who wrote about this. And he was trying to get across what was called the noumenal awe. It was a a mysterious tremendum. In other words, that God, and you see this throughout the Bible, is one of complete dreadful awe, that there's something about him that when you meet him, different than anything else in life, that when we see the passages or there's a meeting with God, there's this holy terror. He describes it in these ways, but yet an attraction to it. He says, there's a couple things. Listen to the qualities. There's a stupor, a blank wonder and astonishment. There's a shudder that we're shaken to our core and held speechless. There's a creature consciousness that we're aware of our limitations in existence. And then there's also a sense of unworthiness and need for covering that we want to hide. C.S. Lewis compared this, he was a great author and writer. Um, He compared this like saying, hey, uh, it'd be different for me to say, there's a tiger in the balcony, then there's a ghost in the bathroom. He said it like that. He said, you might be like interested about the tiger in the balcony and be like, there's a tiger in the balcony? Sounds like, you know, uh, what, what? (laughs) There's a cougar in the car. I mean, what? There's something there. But in the bathroom, there's a ghost. There's some sense of awe and yet like you want to know and yet you don't want to know. It's why in all the movies, you're like, why aren't you running in a terror horror horror movie? You're like, why aren't you running away? Everybody in the movie is like, why are they always stand there and wait for the bad guy to get them? That's that whole thing they're trying to capture. Rudolf Alto said that, that there's knowledge of the Holy One, that God is so separate and holy. And I think that knowing him and knowing how holy is, I think a lot of the wrong ideas of the way we approach him and the way we think about Christianity comes from our, our misunderstanding of what, who he is and his character as the Holy One. It, here's how it really gets practical. When you pray throughout your week or when you approach your week and you're thinking about the things that you hope God can accomplish, do you really think he's that powerful to do those things? I really think our prayer life and the way that we, our prayer requests, if you want to put them, really uncover the ways that we think God really is that powerful. That we see things in our lives, we see injustices, we see hard things all around us. But is God really capable of this, of changing things? Is he really powerful enough? Or have we maybe reduced even some of our prayers because we may not think he is? What kind of a God do we think he is? 
I mean, many of us in this room are dealing with things, whether it's a family member who's ill, maybe even watching online, as I've been discussed, there are people who are struggling with deep infirmities, the longing and wishes that we have. See, this is where this becomes very practical really quick, because what we tend to do is we look at or towards the authority that we think will actually be bigger than us that will put us in a position of safety. And yet it says the Lord reigns. There is one on the throne. He's, here's what's incredible about him. There's no amount of God being in this passage. Notice there's no moment where he has to prove himself. It's all directed. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Let them exalt you. Everything is driving to this fact that he is the one lifted up. And there's no amount of proving that he has to do. If there's one thing I have learned as a parent, and maybe you've learned this in terms of being a teacher, a parent, or anybody in terms of, if you begin to try and prove that you're an authority to your children or those around you, you have immediately lost it. <laughs> then you're having to puff yourself up. Then you're having to say, hey, because I said so. No, 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 no. You know, you start using that language. There is no amount of that that God has to do here. And it is really hard, I think, for us who live in a position where even when it's somebody who's in authority that maybe we didn't vote for, and we, we are so often and quick and even have used, and maybe some of us in this room have used even the phrase of saying, that's not my president. I mean, this is, this is where we as a culture can come from, and yet we look to God to be how powerful? See, it cuts to the core of what do we really believe in the authority of who God is? Is he the one who does reign? If we really believe in him, that his, his positioning is not because we voted for him or his likes or his acclaim, or easily we can set him up and tear him down. But if our faith really is what it is. And this is why so many of us feel like our faith can collapse so quickly is because we put our faith in our own faith. We put it in the fact that what reigns? The Lord reigns. Or, and not just this, listen, this is showing us that God isn't just in this position to make you tremble. Because there's some of us that think, okay, am I supposed to just feel like super guilty and shamey? No, no, no. Actually, notice the passage isn't about you being put in a position of guilt or shame so you see God bigger. No, no, no. It's to see how big God really is and to actually elevate you to it. In fact, John Calvin, one of the greatest theologians himself, said this. He said, God desired to dwell in the midst of his people, not only to direct them, but to elevate them to things above. To bring our minds, our eyes, our life to things above. This is why it says in the next verse, verse four, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity and you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. What it means is immediately it goes from his exaltation that he is active in life. I was, man, I was um, on a, at a stoplight on a corner, I don't know if you've seen this, is on um, West End and Whitebridge, big intersection. 
And um, there's a guy out there who's every now and then he'll pull up in a van and pull out like this double decker sign that has all this religious language on it and his kind of understanding of, you know, where we are in culture today and, you know, has a myriad of things written on it. Well, there's also sharing on the same corner, a man who um, frequently sells the contributor. And I happen to pull up when these two gentlemen um, actually were having a, a, looked like a very heated disagreement. (laughs) And I just sat there at the light for a while and I really wished I could have just parked and hopped out and just said, hey, I just listen. Because it made me think, what, what are these two gentlemen talking about when it comes to the activity of God in the world? Because it's obvious these signs are saying, this is what I think about God and his, his movement in the world and who's bad. And it clearly states who's bad, who's good. And you could see the, the guy with the contributor doing one of these motions. And you know, when somebody's doing this at you, you know that there's something heated going on. What do you think God thought about their conversation? How much about justice and do we pray for it? And I wonder what was going on. I have no idea in that conversation about how God acts and and, and love. Look, notice the only place in this passage that it says that he loves something is justice and equity. That he is not a God that just sits up there And we think he just doesn't really care, but that he's so active that what he loves is justice and equity. And what that language means, it's almost like a fabric. It's the word peace, shalom. It's been described as a fabric being rewoven together that was torn apart. That what God wants and cares for is the small little ways of justice and equity that you and I actually carry out even throughout our day. the way that we treat the person we work with, the way we see the person cooking our food when we're at the restaurant and we're just paying and going about our day, the way that we watch the news and kind of go, do we, here's the question, do we love what God loves? Because God is who he is. His equity and his justice is what he loves, that what he's bringing together, that shalom, that peace, what we say to each other at the very beginning, peace be with you and also with you. We're not just doing that because it's like, man, that's kind of a cool way to start a service. It's breathing out what God loves. How do we love what God loves? When it moves into verse six, right? It begins naming these names. Moses and Aaron were among the priests. Samuel, who was among those who was called his name, they called to the Lord and he answered them. It's interesting. It says the first things, it lists these three names and it says God answered them. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible at all and don't know who these characters are, Moses, you may know who he was. Uh, He led the people out through the Red Sea, right? Aaron was his brother and spoke for him on his behalf. So Moses and Aaron were brothers and really were intermediaries for the people of God before God and even to Egypt. Remember when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. 
Aaron speaks as well for him because Moses struggled with, had a speech impediment. And then it also lists Samuel. Samuel, who would be the actual prophet who would speak on behalf for David, who selected him. Now, you may recognize King David, that famous name. His first accounts are in two books, First and Second Samuel. Samuel, that's who it is. Why these names? And they would sing these names. Notice this is a psalm, so it's sung. They're singing these names to say, be reminded, these are the priests. These are the heralds of who God chose to be the intermediators, to be the mediator between God and the people, and God answered them. Here's what's incredible about the psalms. Over and over, you will read a psalm like this one, and, and many times theologians struggle with this. They'll read it and they'll say, wait, are these two psalms put together or is this the same one? But what you can see in this one oh, as the other ones is that these aren't two different psalms. This is a connective psalm, and here's why. These priests are showing that the unholy meets the holy and that God, how God loves his people that he answers them. And it's, that doesn't just say he answers them once. It says in verse eight as well, O Lord our God, you answered them. Here, here's what's incredible about this. There is language showing us that the God of heaven and earth, who we see often, and maybe we use this language and some people use it as a higher power, doesn't just sit in a place to wind the clock of this world, and then to let it go. He not only loves justice and equity, but he answered them. He spoke to them. He condescends to them. Man, there is nothing more powerful than when you see someone of great power speak to somebody of great, like, just without power. Man, I even remember Jason Moma, the, the big actor, uh, calling a kid whose favorite like star is Aquaman and just calling him, and he, this child had cancer, and they did like a little video face chat thing. And this kid answers the phone to see Jason Moma, Aquaman, to him, on the phone talking to him about his infirmities and how much he's just great, glad to see him. And this kid couldn't just wait to ask him, how do you ride on dolphins? Why is that such a powerful moment? We don't know either one of those people. We were watching a documentary the other day, Dude Perfect, I'm a house full of boys. I don't know if you're, I mean, you can be a girl and love Dude Perfect. I don't know if you do, but we love that, okay? These guys scream all the time. They're all on the, on the TV all the time. And there was a boy in Texas who, who was sick and could not make their show. They call him up, put him on FaceTime, and hold him up for the whole audience to talk to him. Why do those things hit us so powerfully? Because there's something about the incredible power and height of where someone is, the positioning, reaching down to the one who has none. Those are tastes, Mo moments. 
of the fact that we have a God who has not only reigns and sits above, but he answered them. This is the connection between verses five and six. This is where it goes to say, God speaks. And notice, it says this word next, and it says in verse eight, oh, our Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings, a forgiving God. It moves not only they answered them, he listens, he's intent, he hears them. His ear is inclined towards them, even in his great power. And yet he's forgiving. And the word forgiving means lift. Yesterday, and I told him I was going to use this illustration, we were at my house, uh, my actual house that flooded years, uh, it feels like years ago, months and months ago. And it has all this debris and trees and stuff that had to be ripped up. And we're talking not just like little things, we, enough of it that would fill up this entire stage. It's enormous. And trees this big around and yada, yada. Well, a few, a few people in this room actually came to help me move some yesterday because it was all thrown in a pile in, in the backyard. And it looks like, I mean, I don't even know. I didn't even describe it. And all the rain, it's been sitting there for months. So imagine all this dead stuff, all the rain, there's like a mud pile. It's just created this giant, it's disgusting, but it was so fun in some ways. Like you're like in there muddy, like pulling, we're sitting there pulling all this stuff and, you know, we're, we're looking over our shoulder and over in the corner is this bobcat, one of those, you know, lifters, right? Front loaders. And it's sitting over there and we're like, man, I wish we could use this thing. It would be incredible. And we're all like moving and pulling things out. All of a sudden we hear this, dum, dum, dum. yeah! And I look over with the rest of the guys and Scott Greenwood, one of our deacons, who will be serving you communion, by the way, is in this thing and he's like somehow figured out how to turn it on without a key. The code, he's like, yeah, and the thing's like, eh, eh, eh. I mean, he brings that puppy over and it's like, we're done in an hour. We start loading this stuff up. It's literally, get, he's, he's sh- I don't even know how he knows how to run these things. He has one, he has a friend that has one. I don't even know. That's what Megan was like. How does Scott Greenwood know how to run a bobcat? I mean, who, who's doing that every, you know, it's awesome. He gets the, the forklift stuff, digs it down in there, lifting this stuff up, throwing it around. Like it's all on the street now. We're done in like an hour and a half. My back is killing me just from trying to pull the stuff out. And this thing had no problem lifting it out. And here's the thing about it. It's not just, oh yeah, it can lift as if the word lift for forgive. It actually is pointing to the fact that where did the cost of lifting go? It's one thing for me to try and lift it and my back is so sore. And I guarantee you every guy I see in this room that was there is, is like sitting up very straight today. But the cost went on top of this thing. It lifted it up out. Forgive means to lift, literally the translation to lift. It means your transgressions, your sin is lifted up off of you. And you cannot do it yourself. This is unbelievable that the fact that there's a holy God that would reduce himself to meet himself in the most unholy of ways to lift off the sin in us 
so that we could be free from that. The, this table that's set in front of me is really a picture of that. And I don't know if you noticed this at the beginning. This psalm begins with the place that God is enthroned. That God just isn't enthroned, but it says he sits in verse one, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. What in the world is he talking about? The cherubim were on the lid of the ark. Maybe you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a small box about a yard long, a foot and a half wide and deep that was overlaid in gold. That's where the Ten Commandments were. In fact, also Aaron's staff, who's listed here, and a pot of manna from when they were wandering in the wilderness. And this ark was placed in the holiest of holies. It was called the center of the temple or tabernacle. So when it talks about Zion here, this is where the temple was and in the middle of it with curtains all around was the ark. And God had two cherubim on either side that would face with wings and God's cloud would come down and meet his people there. And here's what's fascinating. Every year, the priest would enter into the holiest of holies, not just to meet with a cloud, but actually to take a branch dipped with blood and sprinkle it on that throne top. So that what you have is not just some cool gold overlaid thing. Imagine it sprinkled with dried blood all over the top of it. Because how does God love his people? He loves his people in a way that no other authority can. What other authority in all of history, space, and time has left the throne to come and take up the flesh that we so struggle in, need justice in, long for forgiveness to be real and tangible, not just a word or something, but an actual lifting off. How in the world does God do it? He does it in his son. So much so that we read in Hebrews chapter four, listen to this. Since then, we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen to this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to find help in our time of need. Did you hear those two things? Draw near to the throne with confidence. Confidence in the way that we pray, in the way that we expect, in the way that we look to God for help in our time of need, that mercy, that grace, that is ours. Because of the high priest we have in Jesus, there is no other philosophy, no idea, no other religion that touches such great heights and depths of the reality of our life in the transcendence, the upwardness, the holiness of God, and yet the unholiness and depravity and struggles that we have, and yet does it all through himself in Jesus Christ. That's what you taste at this table. That's why the early 
uh, Romans and talked about the early church as cannibals. They're like, who are these people eating body and blood? It's not that it really is, but it, it drives us by faith to the one who is ultimately holy because you can't come to this table thinking it's not holy because it's not our body and blood, it's Jesus. But this table also shows us how we're loved because the deep, great holiness of God sacrificed for our sin so that you may come taste and know that you are loved in him. Praise be to God for his greatness that he reigns. Let's stand together.